Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 29. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. And in this podcast, I talk to another juggling Dan. I talk to juggler Dan Thurman about his very successful juggling and motivational speaking career. But before we get to that, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. They have products, they put on a yearly festival, they have competitions, and so much more, including a great bunch of jugglers. Information about this group can be found at juggle.org. Join the IJA. Join the greatest group of jugglers in the world called the IJA. All right, and also let's thank me, Dan Holzman, by mentioning my private coaching website service, braindrizzles.com. That's where I teach comedy, career advice, mentorship, creative thinking, and so much more. Any of your performing needs can be found and addressed at braindrizzles.com. Okay, put down your juggling clubs, put down your balls and rings. Get ready for juggler and motivational speaker, Dan Thurman. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast. My guest today is Dan Thurman. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Dan. Nice to see you. Well, nice to hear from you. Uh, it's been quite a while. Now, I think we have a, a bit of a history, me and you. Where was the first time we met? Oh, my goodness. It was uh, the King Richard's Renaissance Festival in Bristol, Wisconsin. I want to say like 1980, 81. I had I just recently learned how to juggle and was performing there with guys like Mike Vondruska, who was my first teacher, Turk Pipkin, I think Jimmy Ellis, some of those other guys were, were kind of in and around the space. And then you and Barry came through, and it, it might have been then, might have been a year later or so. And I remember watching you guys do your thing and, and kind of beginning a conversation and learned a lot from you. And you were, what, about uh, 12 years old back? Yeah. Yeah, I, I learned to juggle at 11, and that was, uh, you know, 79. So I was 12, 13, I think, when we met. And I remember you telling me, back then I was Danny. I went by Danny. And I remember you said to me, let me tell you, young man, one day you will be one to know, be known as Dan. And so anyway, <laughs> somehow that stuck with me. And I, I guess you were right, because it, it did change eventually. Well, some people still call me Danny, some uh, showbiz types. My grandfather used to call me Daniel. Daniel. I don't know if you ever got that one, Daniel. Yeah, a few people. A few people. I find people who call me Danny or family members and people who know me from the old neighborhood in Chicago. And how did you first discover juggling What uh, at that age? Did you see it on TV or what's your first experience and how do you remember that first experience affecting you? Well, I was at the Renaissance Fair really from, for the entire summer because my mom's an artist. So all throughout my life, she was not only an artist, but an entrepreneur and kind of a self-motivated business person. She was always exhibiting her work, which was wildlife on, on natural surfaces, boards and rocks. And she did canvases and things as well like that, but amazing paintings. And so we were always at fairs and festivals. And so we did the, the Renaissance Fair. And so I had nothing to do but just kind of wander around and, and take it all in. And it was Mike Vondruska. It was his show that really kind of piqued my interest. And I was just fascinated by what he did. And one day I watched his show six times in a row. And he eventually noticed as I had made my way up to the front row. And he said, hey, kid, can I help you? Would you like to learn? And he taught me the basics. And 
it sort of became a mentor to me, not just in juggling, but also in business and how to put, to put together an act. And so within the next couple of years, I had integrated myself into his show a little bit and then had my own act and then just became a performer at a really early age. So you're one of those Renaissance Fair kids. There were good kids and bad kids mm. <clears throat> because the bad kids would be the ones that would watch your show and then they would know all of your jokes. Yes. And then with, within a few shows, they would get bored and they would start shouting out and acting up. So you were actually one of those kids who was a good Renaissance Fair kid. Well, I tried to be. I don't know if I always was because I did have to learn a couple lessons the hard way. Like I didn't understand that I couldn't practice behind Mike while he was performing. That was one of the early lessons. And he was like, he was noticing the audience watching me and kind of being distracted and looking through his act at what I was doing. And he said, kid, you can't do that. You got to throw focus. You can't take the focus. Uh, that was one lesson. And then another one was you memorize somebody else's show because you see it over and over again. I thought it would be okay to just kind of do his act as my own first act. And that's when I learned how important it was to originate your own material and to develop your own personality and character and, and get creative, which was a huge lesson. And, and really, I think it's, it's such a beautiful aspect of the art form. It, there's always something new you can create. Well, it's good you learned it at such a young age. There's still jugglers today who I see, they should know a lot earlier that the idea of you juggling seven balls right next to my show, where I'm a comedy juggler and I'm not going to be able to achieve that kind of, of skill in my show, is sort of distracting a little bit from what I'm going to try to accomplish in my yeah, performance. exactly. And of course, having your own original act as opposed to sort of aping what you've seen is a very good technique as opposed to being what we would call a, a hack or a snake or a, a joke thief. Right. And I think there's there's some part of that, especially in the beginning, there's an innocence where perhaps giving you the benefit, give it, giving some of those guys the benefit of the doubt, they don't know any better, like I didn't. But eventually, you know better, right? And at that point, you're crossing the line, and it really does become a matter of intellectual property and just respect. And so what point did you start deciding that this was going to be something more than just a hobby that you wanted to have your own show and sort of, from my memory, is this is something you've always wanted to do, that you've always wanted yeah. to be a juggler. Well, I enjoyed it so much that I, I was doing it. I was, I was good at it. For me, as a totally hyperactive kid who didn't know what to do with all my energy and, and had kind of encountered some obstacles and barriers in school, and it was an outlet where instead of being the slightly dysfunctional kid, I was now doing something everybody really appreciated and enjoyed and respected. So to me, that was like giving me crack because I loved it and I wanted to just do more of it. And so I don't recall ever making a conscious de decision that I wanted to perform, except for that Mike would ask me, do you want to do this? Or he'd show me how to pass the hat. And I was like, this is really good. I do want more of this. But it was something I just kind of grew into and discovered age 14, 15. Hey, look what's going on here. I've got some income. I've got a a pretty good thing going here, and there's some potential for me to really develop this. And at that time in Chicago, there were a lot of other opportunities for walk-around entertainment, corporate events, things like this. So even outside of the fair circuit, I mean, I had never really did the fair circuit at that point. I just did that one fair, but I, I began to get called in to do other other jobs, juggling and stilt walking and unicycling, which I had learned from a guy named Frank Birdsall at that time. And it was just like I was making checks and, my, and I, was, I didn't even have transportation, of course, because I was too young. So my folks were driving me around to all these different gigs. 
And then I had my own act, which was, again, a very a big achievement because a lot of people could have the skills, but they didn't have the routine. So you couldn't say, engage and entertain this audience for 30 minutes and pull that off after dinner or wherever. And I had that. So we moved, my family moved from the Chicago area to Georgia into the Atlanta area, one of the suburbs here, when I was 15. By then I was a sophomore in high school. And so I had all those skills and I kind of brought them down. At first, I didn't perform that much. I was just kind of focused on the transition and schoolwork. And then eventually, I started cold calling the different entertainment agencies in the Atlanta area and introducing myself. And I found that there was also a lot of business here at that time for conventions, trade shows, fairs, festivals, and whatnot. And because I was, I was really versatile, I could do a lot of different things. And I was easy to work with. You know, that was the other thing. I would, I'd actually show up on time and, and do a good job. I was able to to quickly kind of penetrate into some of those connections. Did you have to overcome like an age barrier when they found out you were only 15 or 16 years old? Was it, were they hesitant to hire you at first? You know what? It was, yeah, I think there, were, there was maybe some of that, but there was also another component to it that was kind of like the, I don't want to say like wonder kid, but here's a, here's a really young kid who, who was looked young because I was a little guy, but also had all these skills, not like, Anthony Gatto, certainly. I was never a super technical juggler, but I had the the charisma and the professionalism and the comfort level in front of an audience that en- allowed me to really engage them with confidence. And that was the key. And then I had the skills to back it up. So if it was an obstacle, it wasn't one for long because people soon got to know that I followed through on what I said I would do. And how did you develop the, the performance aspect of it? Was something, did you have a, a theater background or is this something that Mike Von Druska instilled in you? Yeah, Mike really taught me most of those lessons. And I also worked with Lester McNeely, who was another early collaborative partner and several other people in and around the Chicago land area. Andy Head, I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. Andy, before he, he won the nationals at IJA, we were good friends working together at Triton Troopers Circus, which was a, a regional college circus run by Jeff Altman. And, and you look at that group of talent that was right there and, and a part of that. Paul Bachman. I mean, come on. These, these amazing people who were just feeding me as a kid. And I was sort of learning partly through what they said, but mostly through osmosis, all these lessons about performance. And then I got to go to a couple early IJA conventions. And I met Anthony when he was I think not nine, I was 13 or something like that. And I remember him telling me, you know, you'll be a really good juggler one day. Don't worry. <laughs> and so I just soaked it all in and like, like you would at that age and just kind of created my own thing as a synthesis of all that I was exposed to and then kind of interpreting it in my own way. And your mother was always supportive of your choice to be a performer? Very much. Yeah. She always said, it doesn't matter what you do in life. What matters is how you do it. So if this is your thing, do it extremely well, be professional about it, run it like a business. And, and, uh, and that was the greatest lesson. And the, and the encouragement was meant the world, as you can imagine. And what was the first convention you went to? Where, do you remember where it was located? Cleveland. Oh, Cleveland, yeah. Ohio. Yeah. Cleveland, Ohio. And then I went to Santa Barbara and Las Vegas. And so those were some of the early ones for sure. Really, really great memories. And at that time I was traveling with Mike and Lester and some of my other friends and so it was always also a journey for me to be away from home at these big events for the first time kind of on my own, which was really awesome. But then you decided to go on to college and you got a degree in, in marketing and business. Was this part of an overall strategy? Well, a little bit. So I had 
you know, I love being on stage in front of an audience and I kind of had that going on. I did some theater in high school. And so I was at a crossroads where I really had to choose in terms of, I knew I would go to college. That was never an option. But I thought, am I going to go and, and study theater and really explore more of the, the whole artistic side of who I am? Or do I want more of the business understanding background? And I thought, you know what? I wanted to go into business to really understand those components. At that time, I didn't really have a, a clear idea of where I was going with my career, but I did have a, a genuine interest in being an entrepreneur and being a, a business owner. And I had also started to really become intrigued by, by motivational content, uh, speakers on tape and books that I was reading, guys like Zig Ziglar and Wayne Dyer and Tony Robbins and and it wasn't, Dan, at that time that I thought, I want to go into that business or I'm going to be doing that or something like that one day. But I just really enjoyed it. And so I already was thinking about this idea of who I'd be as a business person. And so I thought, you know what, I'll pursue acting, dance, juggling, kind of more of the theatrical aspect after graduation, which I ended up doing. But I did want that business degree. And was any particular motivational tape or book that really set you off on this course? Can you recommend one to our listeners that sort of... Well, in the early days, I mean, I remember Tony Robbins' Unlimited Power, which was his huge breakthrough book, big book. It's just chock full of amazing content. Tony's great. I mean, people give him a hard time because he's sort of like the, the iconic cliche of motivation. But he's also the person who reinvented the whole industry. And then Wayne Dyer, I loved Wayne Dyer. In fact, I just recently went back because he passed away this year or last year. I went back and on Audible downloaded his entire works and there's a great kind of one volume you can get that, that several hours, many, many hours of his content. And it just fueled me, man. But you know, I would say pick what resonates with you. There are so many great authors and in fact, there's almost too many great choices to choose from at this point, but I would start with the classics. Go back to Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, Wayne Dyer, Tony, those those types of guys really helped me a lot in those early days. Yeah, I'm a big uh, Napoleon Hill fan as well. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that, it all started with him, right? Well, I, I'm also a big personal development guy myself. I really enjoy a sort of strategy towards your life. Now, were you a guy who set goals? Or did you write your goals down? And I did. I did. I, uh, I did that. I did a little bit of that kind of visionary development through some of the programs I was listening to and reading, like Tony Tony's book. But I also learned about a guy named John Goddard, who is an amazing goal achiever, who wrote a life list when he was 15 years old. And, and I talk about John actually in my programs to this day, but he achieved just amazing hundreds of incredible life goals, like exploring the Nile from beginning to end in a kayak and landing and taking off from aircraft carriers. And this concept of setting goals and writing them down was really important to me. And so I, I did employ that at an early age. What were some of these life goals? Do you remember what they were? Well, I wanted to write a book. I knew that. I, knew I wanted to uh, play a musical instrument. I envisioned this idea of, of being a more motivational performer, and I did write that down. But I, I had a different idea in, that my, in my mind about how that would go, obviously, in, instead of how it was now. And then I had just goals that were more about the type of life I wanted to live in terms of being agile and acrobatic and being able to do what I do, not just for a period of time, but for, for my whole life, for a long period of time. So, so that kind of visionary goal 
changed the way I had to look at taking care of myself and exercise and nutrition. And so they, those were more kind of parallel goals, I guess, that were part of this systemic goal about longevity. And so the more I thought about it, the more I wrote, the more I developed it. I kept a journal. That was also a goal. I'd learned how, how journaling was a big part of developing your self-knowledge as well as your body of content. And so that became a daily discipline. And that was really the key. I will tell you though, as I get older, goals are still important, but I, I set fewer goals. And for me, it's more about just getting really clear on my principles and the types of opportunities I'm looking for. Because what I find is often you'll, you'll envision something and say, I'm, this is what I want. I'm going to go after this. And what presents itself to you in the more versatile way is often much different and much, even much better. It's really what you need at that time than what you initially envisioned. So I think there's also this freedom we need to have to not necessarily be so locked into our goals, but look for the congruencies that'll take us where we really want to go. Yeah, I agree. I always think that a lot of people say like, the ends justify the means. And I always think that if your means are good, mm. the ends will take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Like if your lifestyle and your the way you're productive in your daily life, because I read a lot of showbiz biographies as well as my motivational stuff, a lot of people don't have an overreaching plan. They kind of, opportunities present themselves and then they make the best choices based on those opportunities. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. And being authentic and present and in the moment and just in your art, whatever it is, just totally committed to being the best you can be, especially in what we do. Really, that's, that's everything because, you know, one of the things I say is you never know who's in your audience. The greatest marketing opportunity, not just in business, but in terms of making really meaningful connections in life happens when we are in the flow of doing that, which we do because we're in front of a lot of people. Working on that, just the, the authenticity that you bring to your life, I think has been the real key to my uh, my journey. And you talked about your health and fitness being a very important aspect of what you do. Can you give us kind of some basic tips about nutrition and exercise that you've found to be important? Well, for me, I, I don't have a locked-in regimen because my life is always on the move and I'm always in, on airplanes and flying to different cities and whatnot, but I do something physically every day, pretty much every day. A lot of, for me, it's more about flexibility than it is strength training. Although I do a little bit of strength training, mostly with my own body weight, handstand push-ups and, and that type of thing. I eat pretty well and I work on discipline. Like I'll, I'll take a real intentional part of my diet and just kind of say for, for this month, like right now I'm halfway through a meatless march where I'm not a vegetarian. I've never been a vegetarian, but I thought, hey, I want to go this whole month without eating any meat, see what that's like, right? And so but just when you put intention on something in your diet, what happens is you get really intentional about everything and you're more aware. You're, you're just not going through the process of consuming anything that's coming your way. I do the green smoothie like you most mornings and I do that for my family. I do that with them as well. And then in terms of my skills, I practice juggling often in a racquetball court, LA Fitness here or on the road or in my hotel room. I do at least a thousand catches a day, which is five balls for about five minutes, counting my right hand. I do it, and if I have to do it without dropping, so if I, if I drop somewhere in there, I have to start over. So that little one piece of it, even though it's a really, really quick routine, just five minutes, it builds in that sense of accountability and focus and mental discipline 
that I can leverage then when I go on stage, even if I haven't gotten like a full warm up or whatever. It's like I know I'm ready because I've got the touch in my fingers and my focus is where it needs to be. And I just know I, I'm, I've done the work it takes me to be ready for those onstage moments. To your point, I'll be, uh, I'll be 48 this year and I'm still doing tumbling runs across the stage, handstand push-ups, back tucks. And I intend to be able to do that for a long time. People say, what are you gonna do when you're 60? And I say, it'll just be more impressive. So that'll be, that's what I'm aiming for. Now let's go back to your college days. So you graduate with a degree and then did you immediately sort of have this idea of being a motivational juggler and, and being in the speaking world or did you start with some other types of engagements? No, during college, I was, I was actually doing mostly the conventions. I was doing walk-around entertainment. I was doing after-dinner shows. I was doing regional festivals. So I didn't go to many football games my college career at the University of Georgia. I went to two, both in my freshman year. But on the weekends, I was always working. I was either working. I did the Renaissance Festival in Georgia for a few years, for several years, and then also different just engagements, sometimes during the week or whatnot. So at the start of every school term, I would block out all my test dates and schedules on my calendar, and then I'd sell the others as I needed. And if I needed to skip class, I would just kind of figure it out and make it up and, and kind of work that out. But I found that going through college, doing that was a really great way to learn my business lessons because I was running a business. I didn't envision it being a motivational kind of pursuit until after graduation. It was actually, I graduated in 1990. And so you, you go through that phase where it's like, all right, I'm on my own now. I'm still doing what I'm doing. I'm, I, I had actually paid for college. My parents told me, you know what? You're making good money here doing your juggling shows. If you pay for your own education, I think it'll mean more to you, which I think was really good advice. I don't know if they were just kind of trying to get out of paying for my college, but I took, to, took it to heart and it, it did mean more to me. And you know what? And so I, by the time I graduated, I had a living. I was making a living and I had already done this thing, graduated from college. And so I was living in Atlanta and kind of running my own business and I was building some bigger events, bringing my friends, my friends in with me or other acts or other performers to do bigger productions. So I took on bigger clients. I kind of became a little bit of a production company along the way. And then eventually, after a few years, I thought, well, you know, what do I really want to do with my business? And it was sort of just this awakening that, oh, well, maybe all this, all these different areas of performing and business and my interest in the motivational piece kind of could merge together into something new. And at that time, I really didn't know about this whole world of professional speaking, but it intrigued me a lot. And what I envisioned, what I thought it would be is sort of like a mock motivational speaker. Like people would introduce me and I'd come out with this really straight businessy introduction of ladies and gentlemen, welcome this expert in multitasking and performance improvement and with this, all these credentials. And I'd come out and then reveal over a period of time that I'm actually a professional juggler. And it would be like, a, it would still be a show, but it would be a show in some sort of professional context. I don't know if you're familiar with Derwood Fincher. Derwood yes. Fincher, yeah, he's, so he's like a double speak artist. So he comes out, he's introduced as an expert, and he's an entertainer. He's an amazing performer. Mm -hmm. and his skill is that he, he can talk and say absolutely nothing, but do it in a way that sounds incredibly intelligent. And it takes a while for the audience to realize he's not really saying anything, and then it becomes more and more hilarious by the minute. And he does like 20 minutes and, and that's his shtick. So I thought I would be more like that, more like an entertainer 
kind of business guy. But what I found is a couple things. I found the more I, I began to explore the idea of what is it I really want to say, you know, what's the message I have inside of me. And now here, interestingly enough, this is where my age barrier to me was the biggest impediment because I thought, who am I? I'm a kid in my young 20s. Who am I to tell professional men and women or people of any walk of life how to live their life? I mean, what do I have to say? And I certainly have no right to say that. And again, that was a barrier, I think, that was more in my mind than in, in their mind. I mean, there might have been some perception of, of who's, this, who's this young kid. I think there's less of that in today's day and age than there was then because now youth and kind of like a newer, younger mindset is often more of an advantage. You know, people want to know what, what are the young minds thinking. Back then, I was thinking that, and I was like, well, you know, who am I going to be, and what am I going to say? And, but the more I got into it, the more I realized I did have something to say, you know what? And I, and I really enjoyed it. And to me, the part of crafting a message and really trying to convey something beneficial to my audience was every bit as intriguing, maybe even more interesting to me than the show, than the show. So, so gradually, and this took years, this took a lot of time. I moved from this entertainer with a little bit of a message to being able to really refine and deepen that message and write books and kind of own that to being a speaker who also happens to have a lot of entertainment value. And, and to me, that was really an interesting path, an interesting journey. Well, I think that's the key. I see a lot of people nowadays who feel that what they really want to do is entertain. That's what they really want to do. They want to be entertainers, but they feel mm -hmm. as if, well, if I add a message, it'll allow me to entertain. And they're like, well, I can do 90% of my show or 95% of my show and then incorporate, you know, live your dreams or some sort of message that can kind of be an overreaching theme for their presentation. But I find that not to be that successful. You really, I think you really have to want to share a message first and then you use your skills as the vehicle to share this message. So to have found that voice and say, what I really want to do is motivate people mm -hmm. and my skills are a tool, I think is the right approach. Yeah. You know, and I know that you've discovered that as well in, in your work and that we, we're like kindred spirits, you and I, Dan, not just because we met way back then and we've kind of crossed paths in life, but I think we share a lot of the same beliefs about life and about truth and about universal principles, about what makes success possible in any field. And so... I mean, I just have mad respect for you. But you're right. I mean, I think people get into the, the idea of I'm going to be a speaker. I mean, like me, everyone says, well, if I do that, I can make more money, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, if you do it, there's definitely bigger budgets for speakers than there are for jugglers, than there are for entertainers. But whether you're a juggler or a magician or a singer or what, whatever entertainer, who's going into the world of speaking, the first step, usually what I see is people say, here's my act, I'm gonna do this, do this, and then kind of like step to the side and make a point. And then I'm gonna go back into my act and I'm gonna go back into this and I'm gonna make my point. And it's very disjointed and disconnected and it doesn't really work. And for me, the kind of deal I made with myself even from the beginning was, if the entertainment upstages what I'm trying to say or what I'm trying to communicate in any way, then I need to scale it back, reposition it, take it out, whatever I need to do, because it can't be a distraction. It has to amplify and kind of visually illustrate 
what I need to have happen here. So that was a, a big one, big, big lesson to learn. Well, for me, it was also important, like what you said before, that this idea of I can make more money is if making money is the sort of end-all, be-all. If money is sort of a byproduct of your passion, if that's if you really want to be a speaker and you're fortunate enough that the value you create as a speaker lends itself to you making bigger paychecks, that's nice. But if you go into it like, oh, I want to be in corporate entertainment because that's where the money is, I think that's sort of a recipe for failure because you have to want to do something. I mean, there's always obstacles. If you don't have the passion to overcome those obstacles, then the money is not going to be enough of an allure to bring you real success. Yeah. And without the passion, there's no way you're going to you're going to you're going to last long enough. It takes time. It takes a long time. In fact, you know, I was talking with somebody about this yesterday, uh, just yesterday that the longer I live, I the more I realize how much of success is just about showing up and continuing to show up day after day, year after year. And, and you see people with amazing talents and skills and insights and intelligence come and go in and out of your life in various degrees of success. And, and then you're still there, you're still doing your thing and, and they've got, come and gone. And it's just because I think they've at one point said, you know what, enough's enough, I'm out of it. And you just have to be patient and you have to be very clear about where you wanna be and what you wanna do and, and why, why it's important. Well, I think success is sort of living the lifestyle you want to live. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who they feel as if traveling, like what you're doing, is, is a very difficult lifestyle to be away from your family, your home, to be on airplanes all the time, to be in hotels by yourself all the time. It might not necessarily be the lifestyle you want to lead. And so people sometimes are focused on this idea of this is what I should want. And then they don't really understand what they really do want. Like when I was trying to do more solo work again, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go into back into doing this golf act I used to do. I used to do a golf act called Danny Mulligan, you know, the clown hmm. prince of juggler, of golfers. And then I started thinking like, okay, I haven't played golf in years. I really don't like golf that much. I really don't like golfers that much. <laughs> I don't really like the people who play golf that much. But I thought, well, maybe this would be a good business opportunity but it's, it quickly dawned on me, like, but you don't want to do it. Right. Like I say, I let it fall to the wayside and thought, well, what do I really want to do? And I definitely wanted to be more of an entrepreneur like yourself and get into other businesses and create other products. So that's what I try to teach the people I work with is what lifestyle means success to you. And you obviously have a lifestyle that means success to you. And you're a family man. You have a couple of kids, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, great kids, great kids. We've been married 22 years. We have a 17-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. And so we have to work, you know, we, we've worked really hard on how to stay connected when I'm gone. Most of my trips, it's great in that I'm usually a quick trip. I fly out the night before, I do my event, I come home. And when I'm home, I'm home. Or I might have a couple events strung together. And so I might be gone for two, three, four days. But it's not like working a cruise ship for three weeks or so it's not like that except for the time I went to perform for the troops in the Middle East uh, that was about a month on the road but that's a very rare thing very it's the exception to the rule more than anything but I find that if you don't you focus on the lifestyle like for me my lifestyle is I love to play with my kids I do stuff with them I did a Zumba class yesterday first one I've ever done mm -hmm. with my daughter uh, Maggie at LA Fitness we did that 
I, I play music with my son. We, we play together in our church band. We, we hang out. We do stuff. It's amazing. And I do like to play golf, actually. <laughs> usually, usually by myself, though, while I'm listening to your podcast. Now, let's talk about this performance for the troops. That's something that's always interested me. How did you get involved with that, and what were your experiences like working for them? I was great. I, um, this was 2005. And so if you think about geopolitically what was going on at that time, it was only four years after 9-11. And so the sentiment in the country and just kind of our whole concept of supporting the troops was at its fever pitch. I got a call from my buddy Spencer Hum, who's with Hack and Slash, fantastic mm -hmm. performance duo. You know them, right? Yeah, I've heard of them from the Renaissance Fairs. Yeah, from the Renaissance Fairs. They were based up in the Maryland area, and they've traveled around to some fairs. A comedy sword fighting duo that's just hilarious and spencer and john are great writers as well and they had been doing these uso tours these trips to perform for the troops and i had told spence i would love to do this with you one day well he he called me up and he said it's happening it's happening in the next two weeks if you want to come now's the time and it would be it was actually spencer and john hack and slash and then myself and todd key todd key another great juggler and he was uh, half of the Zucchini brothers for many years, and he's doing his own thing now. Todd is also a very good friend. And I had to really kind of scramble at that point because I had already booked some things and I had to replace myself out of some dates. But we sort of made the leap of faith to go do it. And it was amazing. It was the, it was the most meaningful performance experience I've ever had because I learned so much. And, you know, we went there thinking – we're going to give something, we're going to give an experience to the troops and kind of lift people up and bring them something of value, which we did, but we got back so much more in return, just in terms of the kindness and the stories and the generosity and the education and people just showing us stuff and the life experience that really changed me in a lot of ways. Were you working at army bases? Were there actual venues or what type of performance experiences did you have out there? We were, uh, we were mostly in the Army and Air Force bases. We did six different countries, moving from Kyrgyzstan to Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Qatar, Kuwait, and Iraq. We spent about a week in Iraq at the end. So we gradually made our way further and further downrange, where there was a lot of action. Mm. In fact, in Iraq, we were in Ramadi and Fallujah and the Al-Assad province and places where they had never had entertainers before because we were a really small act. We were four guys. We traveled small, just in two helicopters, uh, but we played huge because we had a lot of visuals and things. So, so we penetrated pretty deep into the, into the region. And I, you know, when I say it was the most meaningful experience, what I mean is people were saying, instead of just, you guys were great. That was really fun. We laughed a lot or whatever. They were saying, this morning I was in a firefight and this afternoon, you helped me forget about that for an hour and a half, so thank you. Or I hadn't talked to my family in weeks, and I finally did, and my kids are begging me to come home, saying that if you come home, Dad, I'll, I promise I'll be good. And so thank you for making me laugh, because I really didn't feel like laughing today. You really feel the impact of what you do. So let's look at a couple other highlights from your career. I also see that you performed at the White House. What was that the experience? Well, that was actually a Halloween party, and I was working with my, my good friend, my performance buddy, Philip Solomon. Philip and I do an act together called The Rhythm of Success, where we combine percussion and juggling and acrobatics and, and, and also a message that's about teamwork. And so that's a real big part of what I do. 
Philip also, though, runs a production company called Way Too Much Entertainment based in Los Angeles. And every year for the past four or five years, he's produced this event for the Obamas and for the military for Halloween. And so he put together a larger troupe, which I was a part of. I was an ensemble player in a big team effort. It really wasn't about uh, me doing the Dan Thurman speech or the Dan Thurman experience for the Obamas. No, it, but it was a White House credit nonetheless, and that was pretty cool. Sure. I also, the other big royalty highlight for me was performing for the, the Sheik of Dubai, which I, I did that a couple years ago. That was a big one, and that was actually me doing my speech, so that was kind of cool. And what was your experience like in Dubai? I was there not that long ago, maybe a couple of months ago. What, what do you think about Dubai? I thought it was kind of a crazy place. It is. It's, it's very bizarre. You see, uh, it's a lot of paradox. You see mm -hmm. these incredible buildings that are just the world's greatest architecture in the middle of nothing and people walking around in, in very traditional garb. I'd, been, I'd spent a lot of time in the Middle East, obviously, so that part of it I wasn't really shocked by. I was really impressed by how clean it was, how well maintained everything was, how every, all the, it seemed to me the technology was just always working. The transit systems were great and people were super friendly. I was there with my wife and we were staying in some really nice places. So that might've been part of it too, but I walked away really impressed. Yeah, I, me too. I thought the, the hotel and the food, unfortunately I was performing outside Ooh. <laughs> and, and it is a desert. Yeah, and windy. So, it can be really, really windy. It can be really windy, and I had, we had to convince the people that maybe performing out in the sun in the desert was not a good idea, because they actually <laughs> wanted us to perform like during the day, and we, at a certain point, we're like, well, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. But like you say, there is a paradox of the people in the very traditional dress and the skyscrapers and the malls, and you realize everything is man-made. Like they have the marina area, yeah. Which is a large, uh, I guess they have the most skyscrapers in a concentrated area, like in like six block area, like 60,000 people live or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's built around this marina and you realize everything here has been created. Like there was no water here. No. And then once they created the water, they said, you know what would be good is an island out there. So let's build that too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, okay. Amazing. You know, and they've, and most of that is owned by the Sheik, who was this guy in my audience. It was pretty cool. And did you have any personal interaction with the Sheik? Just in passing, just a polite greeting. But yeah, he was, he was kind of in and out on his own terms, and he had his own protocol for things. But uh, at least, you know, like I said, you get, you get the credit. You could put it in your bio. Well, yeah, I mean, like performing at the White House, performing for the Sheik of Dubai. It's also funny how people talk about, like, corporate entertainment as if it's like one thing, like if they do a, a walk around at the Pepsi Cola uh, barbecue, that they have it as being a corporate show for Pepsi Cola. The range of corporate entertainment going from, like you're saying, like doing your own 60 minute presentation mm -hmm. to doing that part of an ensemble where you're basically on stilts in the background while they're having the egg toss, is sort of both listed as the same credit. Well, but you've got to, I mean, as you're building your career, you do have to leverage mm -hmm. what you have and, and always put it in its best light and try to work to that next level. And so success is really about, I don't want to say falsifying your, your credentials, but positioning them in the best light, leveraging not only your credentials, but your experience. So you can always step into that next uh, encounter and say, well, I haven't done this before. Am I going to be able to pull it off? Well, yeah, I can, because even though I haven't done this, 
what have I done that's similar in some way? What have I done that's prepared me for that? So every one of those gigs is important. In fact, I want to circle back to this. We talked about the world of speaking and the world of content and entertainment. There's a myth out there, even in the world of speakers, that they say, are you a content speaker or are you an entertaining speaker? It's uh, this continuum, like a line that you could plot yourself somewhere on this graph. I've said, no, it's never that because it's always both. There's the content you're delivering and then there's your entertainment value, which you could also say is your engagement. How interested are people going to be in hearing you and that live experience that you're going to create for them? Because otherwise they could just read the book, right? Otherwise they'll just go to the internet, they'll get the information, they'll get the facts. But we all perform. And so it's really about being able to do both of those things extremely well. If we're entertainers, and we've really honed this art form of how to engage an audience, entertain them, uplift them, keep their attention, and, and kind of know when their attention is drifting and how to respond to that. How do you compensate for that or, or kind of take them in a different direction? That is a, a skill set that is enormously complex and very difficult to develop. And the content part of it is really, really important. But I'll tell you this from my experience, it is much more difficult for someone who comes from a very expertise, content-based, factual life of education and study and says, here, I've got this great wealth of knowledge. How do I present it to an audience? It's a much harder journey for, I think, those people to learn how to engage and entertain than it is for entertainers to say, how do I find the relevance and the, really the meaning of what I'm trying to unpack in the content and connect it to an audience in a way that it makes sense to them. And so I would find that very encouraging for our community. And what are some of the topics you speak on? Do you have particular titles for your different presentations? Yeah, I, I talk about performance excellence, about how to bring your best to whatever your stage is, when it, when it matters the most, how do you convert your, your preparation to execution? And I talk about, I wrote a book called Off Balance on Purpose, which is really about well, you might think of it as work-life balance, but I, I don't talk about it that way. In fact, my uh, belief and kind of the philosophy is that balance is the wrong goal and you're not ever going to achieve it. And so it's, you're not, why pursue something you don't attain? Because balance isn't what you get. Balance is what you do. And it's really our ability to, to thrive in this off-balance, constantly changing world that enables us to succeed. And so how do you do that? Well, off balance on purpose means uh, you make it intentional and you bring that sense of purpose and mission and meaning. And so that book has, has really, and that message has really gained a lot of traction for me because I find it's a very relevant and timely and important message that a lot of people respond to. And just at a gut level, they hear it and they go, you know what, that's, that's true. And that's my reality. And maybe this guy has something to say because he looks like he really gets it. And so for me, that's been the biggest brand in terms of my content. And I find that it's very versatile that I could leverage that into many different types of experiences. And how do you see the, the industry changing over the years? Do you feel like it's in a, in a thriving place now? Is it diminishing? Are people still actively looking for, for speakers for corporations? Yeah, I think technology is changing, but to, to your point, specifically what you're asking me, Dan, is is how is the business changing or how is people's perceptions of the content that they're looking for changing? Well, for people who want to get into the business, it seems like sometimes people, they don't understand what they're getting into. Like they might say like, 
or I want to get into cruise ships. But they don't realize that maybe cruise ships now are sort of hard to get into because you could call up a cruise agency and say I'm a comedy juggler and they would say, well, we already have enough comedy jugglers. Right. Do you feel that the speaking thing is a, an entry position that people can aspire to get into now or how would they sort of start that process in getting into the business? Okay, gotcha. So I think to be completely honest, I think it's it may be harder now than it was when I started in some ways and in some ways it's easier. Back in the day when I got started, there was no internet, there was no there's no way to really find leads and make those connections and also there was no way for people to find you other than, you know, making doing free speeches or word of mouth or making phone calls and so that was more tricky and then when they did call you and say, "Hey, I hear you're offering something, we might want to hire you." I'd say, great, can you wait three days while I send you a VHS tape and then you can call me back and tell me what you think about it and then we'll have a conversation. So now everything is instantaneous, which is really, really good. But I would say that the bar is also a lot higher in terms of what people are looking for. They want to know what is, what's in it for them. And sometimes what's in it for them is just a really fantastic experience, you know, and a successful meeting and an entertaining act that's going to blow everyone away, but also have corporate sensibility. That's a really viable commodity. I don't want to say it has to be a really thick content-based speech. No, it doesn't. But get clear about what you're offering and what you're bringing. Then you need to understand the marketplace. One of the, th the suggestions I would make is to look at the National Speakers Association. I'm a member of that. Uh, There's several other great people, John and Owen, the Passing Zone. They've learned a lot through NSA and, and many others in our community who've looked at that. And it's just a great way to shorten your learning curve about what it takes to run a speaking business and how that's different perhaps than an entertainment business. But regardless, there's a lot to learn about business skills and follow-up and technology and, and all the different aspects of how to put together a good demo video, things that you'll learn in, through that experience that will really enhance your entertainment career as well. So that would be an idea. A look at NSA because you're not going to go there and immediately find where the gigs are, but you're going to begin to make connections. You're going to be, be, you know, you'll meet people who are already doing what you're doing. And that would be the other thing I would suggest is be bold and talk to people and ask them, can I take you out to lunch? Can I learn from you? How do I do what you're doing? Because And really learning more about it because you might discover this isn't a road you want to go down and that's fine. That's totally cool. But if it is, there are a lot of great mentors who would be willing to sort of show you the way. And do you think that being the author of two books, was that really helping you give you more credibility as a speaker? Is that something that you would that you found very important? Yeah, I, I think it's important in a couple different ways. There is the credibility piece, for sure. People want to know that. And when you've written a book, they look at you, obviously, a little bit differently. But also, there's the, the deepening of your own content when, you re, when you're forced into a situation where you have to write a book. And, and you want to write a good book. I would suggest don't just write a book if it's going to be 100 pages of just whatever came into your head. But if you have something that you think is important to say, and you're gonna do it in a way that's professional, because you, I mean, it's something that's gonna last forever. When you create a book, it's gonna be there for a long, long time. So do a great job with it. And when you do that, you're gonna become so much more confident about what it is you, you can teach and what you can say and how you wanna say it. One of the things I learned is in the process of writing a book, 
my speaking actually got a lot better because I was sort of rewriting my speech as I was writing my book. And so my speaking informed my book and my book informed my speaking. And so it was like this, this closed loop of just improvement and it just kept getting better and better. So the process of writing, even if it's a journal to yourself, is really, really important. Now, and speaking of credibility, I see also that you were inducted into the Speaker's Hall of Fame. I know John and Owen are also in that. That must have been a very nice moment. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the collegiality of the, the National Speakers Association, as I talked about, it's where really the people who, who do this for a living and do it consistently year out, where they meet. And so, you know, I've been a member for 22 years, since 1994, when I first really kind of got serious about this business, and I made that leap of faith, right? And then so getting them to really understand the organization and get to know people and you see the folks who are, have been around a long time and it, you can't really earn the Hall of Fame, what you can do, because it, the people who are in the Hall of Fame basically look out and say, who are the, the few people we can vote in this year? And so it's really meaningful. It's kind of recognition from your peers that you've contributed a lot to the industry and that you bring something unique to the platform. And so when you find out about it, it's just kind of a great moment. And then you get, you get to prepare your remarks and, and your acceptance speech. And then no one else in the room knows who's going to get it until that day. So it's a really great day. You get to really enjoy in that and share in that. And a lot of people make you feel really great. Now, you've achieved quite a bit, Dan. Where do you see the, the future of Dan Thurman? Is there, are there plans for the next five years or 10 years? Do you have some goals you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. I, I will be writing more books. I actually have a couple different projects already in the works, and I'm in conversations this morning with my editor about how exactly we're going to make that happen. And I see my relationship with my clients going from being more than just kind of like the man of the moment who's in there to do the speech and do a one-time experience. What I've already been trans transitioning into is working with clients in more depth trying to help them really move the bar in terms of their workplace culture and their team's performance and trying to help them over a period of time, which is kind of kind of interesting. But I also really like the position that I'm in right now, being able to stay busy doing what I love with a great team around me. I've got a couple of full-time employees who work really hard to, to make it easy, and I've got a great life in that I can do what I do without an extreme amount of time or effort which makes me really enjoy the moments that I do have with my family and with my life. And, and I think it's important because that, that helps me to continue to live my message, which is something I always want to do. Well, I think this has been a, a very important podcast because, you know, like I said, there's a lot of different ways to approach who do I want to talk to? Who do I, like, do I want to talk to just great jugglers who technically can maybe share some tips on how to improve your seven ball juggling or, or artistic jugglers like a Victor Key? But I think this idea of sort of a successful life, how can you have a successful life as a professional juggler is very, very important. Before we go, do you mind sharing some tips? Like, could we start with perhaps three of your favorite sort of self-help motivational books? Well, you should read my book for sure. <laughs> okay. And of course, <laughs> we'll, we'll have a link. Where can people find out more about you and your books and where can they, where can they buy this book or these two books? Amazon. Amazon's probably the place to go. Yeah, I'd suggest starting with Off Balance on Purpose. Check that one out because that's, I'm really proud of it. That, that was kind of like the uh, accumulation of a lot of things in my life. You know what? Here, I'm, instead of like, suggesting a specific book, mm -hmm. 
I would like to suggest that you develop the habit, if you're really interested in, in improving yourself, a couple habits. Okay. What works well for me is look at TED Talks, right? TED Talks, if you go to TED.com, everybody knows TED Talks. You've done sure. a TED Talk. I mean, they're, they're awesome. And it's a way in just a few minutes, from four to 18 minutes, to open your mind to a whole new world of education in any different area that you probably haven't thought of. And so if you get in the habit of doing a TED Talk a week, a couple times a week, that would be really, really great. Second thing I would say is I find out how you learn. I learn best by consuming books on audio. I'm an avid reader too, but I find that I can read so much more if I listen to it on audiobook. And so audible.com is a big resource for me. I go through at least two books a month on, on Audible, in addition to what I, the other things I'm reading, because I can do it in transition while I'm driving, while I'm practicing, while I'm on my, on my unicycle on a ride, doing some off-road unicycling or whatever, or, you know, that I could just kind of continue to learn. And then that will give you the opportunity to find what resonates for you, because I could give you my favorite books, but they're not going to be your favorite books. And so the thing to do is to find the sweet spot for, of your own a code that unlocks your own personal motivation. And so I would say keep your passions really close to you. Always do what you do and find a way to make it relevant for others. And then you'll always be successful in the life that you live, the moments that you live, and then the impact that you make. And I know that sounds cliche, but it's really so true. Well, I mean, there's a uh, cliches and truth walk hand in hand. I mean, sometimes they are cliches because they are the truth. And I feel you've shared a lot of truth with us on this podcast. I really appreciate you making the time. You're a busy man, and uh, you've made the time to talk to the Drop list, uh, Everything listeners. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great, Dan. Hey, thank you so much. And once again, you can find out more about Dan at uh, danthurman.com. Is that the best website to reach you out? Yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. And you can always reach out to me. Shoot me an email if you have a question, dan at danthurman.com. It's T-H-U-R-M-O-N, M-O-N. So, hey, Dan, great to catch up with you again, my friend, and I hope to see you again very, very soon. Thank you, Dan, and thanks for talking to the Drop Everything listeners. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 29 with my special guest, Mr. Dan Thurman. Thanks, Dan, for all that great advice on juggling and motivational speaking. Let's have a big thanks to our engineer, Karen Holzman, and, of course, the main sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Don't forget to join me this year in El Paso, Texas for their yearly festival. And information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Are you a performer? Do you want to be a performer? You're looking for advice on comedy and career? Then go to braindrizzles.com. That's my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. All right, we've thanked the sponsors, we've thanked the guests. Let me thank you, the listeners. And you can thank me by going to iTunes, leaving a review and a five-star rating. I have very few ratings. So if you like what this podcast says, if you like the way I do it, if you like anything about it, go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. That would be very helpful, and I would appreciate it. Until next time, drop everything except when you're juggling.